Hey folks, welcome back to the DC3 cast. I am Brian, with me as always, our Vince and Zach. We're going to talk about the DC Comics released on August 1st, 2018, starting with The Adventures of the Super Sons, number one, uh, written by Peter Tomasi, illustrated by Carlo Barberi. Um, this takes place sort of between the end of the first Super Sun series and the beginning of the Man of Steel, where John goes off for uh, an adventure in space with his grandfather. And, um, I don't know about you guys, but this felt like, uh, like a return to some good friends. I really enjoyed this. I thought the, the ending with the various, like, alternate universe versions, alternate universe young versions of classic Superman and Justice League villains w- was pretty great. Uh, what'd you guys think of this issue? Zach? Oh, it was delightful. <laughs> it it just... It, it was a return to form, because I I think even over the course of the first Super Sun series, we maybe it was always good. It was, it was always fun, but it, it definitely took a backseat, I think to the main Superman book after a while. And then also all of the Benda Superman hype, but now that we've gotten all that and you know, all of that tension is resolved, this was just, this was very nice. Yeah, it was super fun, super delightful. Uh, Carlo Barberi's art, um, I mean, Jorge Jimenez is as good as it gets in comics, I think. And Carlo Barberi's work on this particular issue is not far behind, I think, from capturing that particular tone and making the... I know one thing that we've talked about with uh, with Damien and John is that some artists are better than others at drawing them the appropriate age, yeah. you know? Yeah. I think... Uh, Barbarian nails that, um, just tons of fun. You already mentioned the um, the like evil gang with the Shaggy Boy, the Ice Princess. Great names here, Ice Princess, Kid Kid Deadshot, Kid, Kid Deadshot Brainiac Six. F- explain to me how that works. Where did this? Where did Brainiac Six come? We just we just got Brainiac Two, right? So Brainiac I don't know. In Rebirth right now, where you know, I mean, uh, I'm not really, I'm not really asking you to explain. No, I, no, I know. Six. I'm just saying yeah, it's yeah. Uh, Rex Luthor, Joker Junior. Uh, not quite as twisted as the regular Joker, but um, like a fun size twisted, dang Joker. Um, <laughs> all, all good, all great. The cover, the boys are back in town. Mm-hmm. Come on, it's. Yeah, they are. <laughs> it's 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 magical. It's official. They're what's, back in town. Yeah, yeah. What's that one drill tweet where it's like it's kind of bullshit that there's so many songs about Christmas, but there's only one song about the boys being back in town. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and there's that one Twitter account that just tweets the the lyrics over and over again. The boys are back in town. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah but no, good shit. This is um, first of all, I feel like Tomasi just has these characters' voices down perfectly. There's there's no doubt that this is the guy who should be writing a Super Sun series. While it is a bit of a letdown that these are not new adventures, 
I'm kind of I was what I was worried about, and I think I speak for all of us, was that Bendis is going to pull John off the table for a long time, and that we were going to miss out on on John's uh, presence, and this was going to be like a uh, you know something, something to have to tide us over while John was while John's status was in limbo. I think now we're pretty much all convinced that John is going to be fine and will be back in the Superman titles probably sooner than later. So that changes the way I feel about this book. Uh, does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also love popcorn. Oh. So. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Even though on Saturday I had... I had bad movie theater popcorn for the first time in a very long time. Sometimes, uh, sometimes the bad movie theater popcorn is actually good. It's probably better than like what you'd get from a microwave bag, whatever. But oh, microwave popcorn is terrible, awful. Yeah, there's always there's always uh, seeds at the end still. Yeah. Ugh, terrible. Yeah. Um, I like the stuff about Damien um, arguing with his teacher. Yeah. <laughs> That was good. Uh, he got he got a hundred percent, but he wanted more. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's really great John and Damien stuff in this. It I think it plays it a little safe sometimes. It it hits some of the you know safe jokes that that we've become accustomed to, but it's it's just nice. The banter's still good. Yeah. And, and and by nature, this has to be a little bit safer because we know where these characters wind up a few months later. So you can't take as many. Yeah, I, I, I didn't. Yeah, I did. I didn't mean safe in terms of the plot no, as know, much as just yeah. a lot of the jokes are this are the same. Yeah. Um. But. But yeah. Yeah, fun stuff. Uh, that brings us to Batman number fifty-two. Written by Tom King, illustrated by Lee Weeks. Um, I'm going to save my thoughts for this for the end. So, Vince, you were probably the biggest advocate for this issue last time, for this book mm-hmm. last time, rather. Did you feel that the f- issue 52 lived up to what issue 51 was for you? I thought it was really good. I um, I have some quibbles with. I think I think some of the dialogue repeats itself or over explains itself a little bit. Um, but not in like, not in that typical annoying Tom King way, although I'm sure you're about to pull out like 10 examples of how it exactly (laughs) did just that. Um, but as I was reading it, it didn't occur to me as that, but it felt like, um, you know, some of the stuff that Bruce was explaining was a little bit over explained. That's fine. I think that's, I don't get too hung up on that. It's, it wasn't annoying to me. I, I think the most fascinating thing about this issue and it kind of um, it kind of plays into what Zach. I actually I, I want Zach to expound more upon this um, when he talks. But um, uh, what? Because I think he's. I think he'll probably say it in a more focused or or more thoughtful way. Because I'm still just exploring what this issue is trying to do. Um, but I think the part especially where he talks about where Bruce talks about why why did Gordon miss a frozen brain stem or a, or a low temperature brain stem? Why did Batman catch it? 
those are questions that can be specifically applied to the situation at hand. But to me, they're bigger philosophical questions about about how Gordon or uh, you know anyone from the Gotham PD or anyone that they bring in to do the autopsies, let's say, why. What, what what makes what makes them human even though they have this job to do to where they can miss this stuff and how how can Bruce be so sure that he can't miss stuff like that as Batman or why is he so obsessed as Batman that he never will miss a thing like that it it really without coming out it's it's one of the more subtle things I've seen Tom King do and frankly this is what I expected from Tom King when I heard he was writing Batman two years ago you know um this idea that like this is a new angle on batman for bruce to to not explore like the the death of his parents that drive drove him to be batman but like the human condition of a flawed normie versus this obsessed batman that has nothing to do with his parents but like why on like a microscopic level does Batman push himself to the limit in this way? You know, yeah. it's, and maybe I'm projecting because it's so subtle that you almost might think it's not there, you know? Uh, but that's really interesting to me. And I think Zach will probably, he brought it up last time and he can probably build on it uh, better than I can. But, but it's, it's finally, and I'm not saying the book has all of a sudden changed for the better for good, but like, this is finally an arc that explores something about Batman in a Tom King way that I'm interested in doesn't feel overdone or uh, water that's already been well-tread. And and it's finally kind of what I wanted to see from him all along. So I'm, I'm, I'm really happy with what we're getting here. Uh, Zach, you want to go next? Yeah, so... I'm I'm with Vince. I'm right there with Vince. This is very good, I think. Um, in fact, I'll probably rock the boat by saying that this is my favorite issue featuring Batman of the week. <laughs> um, yeah, so kind of build, building a little bit, I guess, on what Vince said and what I talked about in the last issue, like this, it feels like this cements very, like even more so that this arc is about, if not the destruction of Batman, then just the, we still don't really know, you know, what Bruce's motivations were for going after Mr. Freeze. If this was just like him venting his anger, or if this is all one big long con where he, if, if he was being self-destructive intentionally or unintentionally, I guess. We still don't know that. But he was being self-destructive, definitely. And I think, like, what this issue does and what Vince was kind of saying is plays with, like, uh, faith and belief and, like, where you put – who you put your faith in um, and kind of how illogical it is that people in Gotham put their faith in Batman – when they don't know when they don't know Batman or even, you know, they don't know who Batman is. He has zero accountability versus putting their faith in the, the police department, the, the real people, the tangible people. Um, and then you can kind of 
even map that on to like all the junk that's going on today in real life and how people put their faith in not you know in personalities and mm-hmm. you get the and these these cult of personality type situations and and then you have real professional people who are do, you know doing their jobs and are good at their jobs who are being told that they are wrong um there yeah i i think this is great i think i this is this is easily the best tom king batman arc i don't disagree with any of that um you know i, I don't think this is perfect but i think that this is as Vince said, maybe the first really new take on Batman that King has had. And what I think makes it especially interesting is that uh, this, like, this requires you to have read the prior 50 issues to get the full impact of it. Like, you see what the loss of Selina did to Bruce. And that wouldn't be properly understood if you didn't read the arc, the arcs that led up to this. And even though I didn't like those arcs, I'm glad that I read them to get the full impact of what he's doing here. Now, a big part of this, which we haven't mentioned yet, is Lee Weeks. Mm. That Lee Weeks mm-hmm. is able to do things with Tom King's dialogue that I don't think other artists, and even other really good artists, are able to do. Like, I think that Weeks... Even if Weeks' is Bruce always looks like he's holding in a fart, which the entire <laughs> issue, he looks like he's just just holding in a fart. Um, but even with that, like I think Weeks is just able to give... He's able to give a certain gravity to the book that doesn't feel forced in a way that like Tony Daniel art feels forced sometimes. This feels very natural, and yet there is there's a lot of tension built up in it and it's just so beautiful like there's this one page uh is page uh let's see page eight in our pdf where you see it it's the bottom of the page is a shot in the morgue and there's two spotlights there's a spotlight on a body in the morgue and then a spotlight on batman walking away it's just such a beautifully composed page and there's a number of pages throughout this book that just really sing in a way that some of king's Batman run just simply hasn't done. Um, even though, you know, there, there's not a ton of Batman in this issue. Uh, and this issue has a couple of things that I really dislike, in theory. Uh, Bruce brings up the fucking pearls again. Like, you know, <laughs> that we don't, we don't need to ever talk about those pearls ever again. But it, it kind of works here. And, you know, it's, um, this is, this is a good issue of Batman. Has, how many times has King mentioned the pearls in this run? I don't even remember. Has it happened a lot? I don't know. I, I just wish Batman creators in general wouldn't do that anymore. Since I think since Morrison used the pearls so heavily in his run, I, I, I think I allow any person doing a long Batman run to reference the pearls at least once. Everybody gets one. Everybody gets one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, was that a reference to? 
Um, I, I what's immediately coming to mind for me. I mean, I'm sure it's not the reference, but it's uh, there's a fa- yeah, yeah. Spider Man yeah, on Family exactly. Guy. So yep, yep. Everybody gets one, and then he <laughs> slings away. Back when Family Guy was sometimes good. Yes, agreed. Hot, hot take, hot take. I know. I, I was just saying uh, earlier today on Twitter, somebody was doing like a South Park versus Family Guy, and I said. Scorching Hot Take, seasons one through three of Family Guy, despite them being nothing but a overcooked Simpsons ripoff, better than anything South Park has ever done. You are wrong, but okay. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. That's fine. That's yeah, fine. Sure. Uh, but no, this... This is worse than that time. <laughs> <laughs> um. But no, you know, I also think that this is, um, I I really like two parts of this. First of all, I think that, you know, we've been told our entire lives reading comics that Batman is prepared for everything. And it's nice to see a story where Batman sort of is gleefully Mm ill-prepared. You know, where he's just, he's, he's pure id, he is pure instinct, and he just beats the shit out of Mister Freeze, for not for no reason, but essentially for no reason. Where he's just he's lost control. And while there are plenty of Batman stories that sort of hint at that, I feel like this just feels different to me in that way. So I, I appreciate that part of it. I also appreciate, like you mentioned, Vince, just the idea of Bruce doubting his his own abilities as Batman, and not because a Robin gets killed. Not because of some, like, super catastrophe happening, but just, he's just not sure of himself. And I think that's really good. And even beyond that, he's, like, weighing, I felt like he's, he's almost weighing the quote-unquote Batman brand value versus the value of all these normal people that make Gotham run, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Like, he's essentially saying, like, all these people are here to do this job. Why did they miss it and I get it? And, and and kind of weighing the value of that and, and, and like Zach says, almost self-sabotaging Batman so that he can be on, so that he can get, almost give, it, give himself an excuse to throw it all away. By saying, "Well, I'm no better. I'm n- not necessarily better than all these other people." Right, you know, right. it's good. Yeah, I I have no belief that this will stay this good after this arc. <laughs> but we'll see. Well, we've got uh, we've got a Matt Wagner one shot issue mm. coming up, and then we go back to a Tony S. Daniel arc. So there you go. Yeah. Um. Let's dig into Deathstroke. Number thirty-four, which we already know Zach is down on. Uh, <laughs> I didn't say I was down on yeah. it. I just said I like Batman better. I, I understand that. Uh, written by Priest, illustrated by Carlo Pagulian, uh, second Carlo illustrator of the week. Just a bit of uh, fun. Keep, fact keeping there. track at home. Yeah, yep. Exactly. Um, so, uh, Zach, why don't you start us off with this one? Uh, I liked this issue better than the preceding issues in this arc, but I'm very glad that there's only one issue left. 
and, and this is also dumb. This is a dumb reason for me to not like this arc, but it feels really weirdly arbitrary that it's set prior in in the in the gap when Tim was trapped by Mr. Oz. You almost mm-hmm. said Dr. Like, Oz, didn't you? I almost did. I really have to like <laughs> stop and think about it. Like it may if, if if Priest has like a good reason for it in the next issue, then fine. Otherwise it's just like weird yeah, mental it, gymnastics for why it has to be then. I agree with that. I also Yeah, think what does it, it matter be, whether yeah. I think it would be much more interesting if Doctor Oz was the villain behind yes. uh, behind all of this. Yeah. <laughs> um Vince, what about you? Yeah, I like this a lot. Um, I'll echo Zach's sentiment about... I feel that about almost any six-issue arc. It's just got to be shorter, you know? But I will say that the payoff in the second half of this issue... Like when, when, uh, when Bruce and Slade are in the Batcave... And the light flickers out, and then all of a sudden he's Batman, and uh, and he's and they're fighting. That you could feel like it was palpable. You could feel the like, oh shit, it's going down now, yeah. you know. And Priest Priest wrote a really uh, engaging script. Um, as far as like. Uh, Bruce and Slade just going back and forth with one another and kind of trading barbs and just the the and then the Pegalan's art really like punctuates like when one of them gets a particularly good line in boom there's some sort of artistic flourish or or you know some sort of something happens in the fight that's like turns the tables too you know it's one of the better mixes of uh quip and uh action and and visuals yeah yeah, yep yeah, that I've seen in a, in a while in Cape Comics. I mean, it's something that some artists do really well, and others it seems to be an afterthought. And this particular issue, it hit me pretty hard as far as that being really cool. There are lots of cool effects in that fight. I thought the way that Slade figured out how you know he about how like the acid rain content yep. of the dust, the pH was not right. You know, <laughs> what just terrific. Uh, work there priest is like a genius when it comes to that stuff even if like i'm a scientist but i don't know if that batman's a scientist I... <laughs> it's not batman <laughs> um, but anyway i don't know if i don't know if that scientific explanation like 100 passes muster right. but but it's perfectly I mean, maybe it does, you know, I wouldn't put it past priest, but but it's it's so credible the way that it's that it comes across, you know, it's really good. You know what? Really great. And then and then the and then the issue ends with the uh, next issue, Mari reads the results. Yep, I love that too. Um so my favorite part of this issue is something that initially I was like, Well that's kinda dumb, but I've really come around on it. And that's the fact that Slade still doesn't believe Bruce Wayne is Batman. Like they're walking <laughs> into the Batcave, and he's like, "I don't know why you built this cave for Batman, this nerd cave." But like, <laughs> I just love the fact that, to me, that is that is such a thing that that almost no other writer writing modern cave comics would have done. 
Like, everybody else would have had Slade know it from the beginning, because Slade is his genius. But I love the fact that Slade was totally in the dark about this. Uh, I don't know why I love it so much, but I do. But to me, that, that's the type of stuff that, Slade, that, that Priest does so well. That, that reminds me of, like, the whole modern run of Spider-Man, where no one is allowed to know that Peter Parker is Spider-Man mm-hmm. since the whole uh, Mephisto thing happened. And so there's all these weird, oh, well, you're Spider-Man's best friend. You work for him. That's what that reminded me of. Yeah. Or even, like, when Bruce Wayne went public with Batman Inc. Yeah, yeah. You know, a, kind of a similar, a similar thing. But it's just, uh, it's a really nice little touch that I don't, again, I, 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 at first you're like, well, of course Slade would figure this out. But I love the fact that he didn't. Well, but he also even kind of talks about that where it's like he may even, you know, think deep down that, yeah, they're probably the same person. But he's like, A, it doesn't matter. And B, I don't want that to cloud my judgment right. at all. Yeah, exactly. Which is an even smarter take on it, I think. Yeah. Man. I don't know what Priest is going to do after this run wraps up, but if DC doesn't have gigantic plans for him, I don't know what they're doing. He has just shown time and time again how smart of a writer he is. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I agree. The only thing I could imagine is, I could also imagine Priest kind of wanting to do his own thing too. So like, if if he's not feeling whatever comes next that's i could see him being somebody who works when he wants to oh yeah absolutely um i mean he took so many years off of comics Mm -hmm. you know so um but yeah i i also agree this this arc feels a little bit long but that's okay you know it's um there's going to be a time we don't have priest deathstroke comics so let's enjoy it while we have it yeah Let's also talk about Green Arrow number 43, the first issue of the new creative team of the Bensons and Javi Fernandez. Um, So this is uh, a new arc, a new creative team, and what seems to be, at least uh, on the surface, a new long-term sort of a new long-term approach to the character. Um... So I'll talk about this one first because I I, I really like this actually. I, I was not a huge fan of what the Bensons did on Background on the Birds of Prey most of the time. I liked some of it, but not all of it. Um, but I think everybody that listens to the show with regularity knows I'm a Roy Harper mark. So to see him used really well here, I think, and not make it just about... like They mentioned the fact that he is an addict, but it's not the whole character isn't built around the fact that he's an addict. I liked sort of him and Ollie's relationship here. I liked the Kate Spencer appearance. Um, I thought the stuff with him and Diana was done pretty well. There was that goofy moment of Diana, like renovating their house with her sonic scream. Um, (laughs) But overall, I thought this issue worked. And we've been on the Javi Fernandez train for a long time. Uh, But I thought he did a nice job here. I thought his work was maybe a little bit more cartoony than we're used to with him. Um, but I, I dug that. And at the end of this issue, I am I am pretty excited about where this where this uh, run is going. What do you guys think? Zach, take it away. Um, 
I don't know. I I'm really conflicted on this arc because it's like on one hand it's equal parts like um you know playing to current continuity which i'm kind of in for because i really like where the justice league stuff is going and this is playing into that i love the i love the art the art's fantastic i like the stuff with roy like you mentioned brian although i'm I'm kind of wary of how this is going to tie into the sanctuary stuff um this feels like a book that's being set up as crossover fodder, but like in a good way, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like good crossover potential. Um, it's, it's the kind of crossover stuff that I think we all like in our DC books. The, the crossovers that, um, favor overarching plots and stories and things. Um, but at the same time, it also is retreading a lot of the um, same kind of like 1% versus the 99 stuff that we've gotten in Percy's run. And that I feel like is, I feel like Green Arrow has almost kind of just been typecast into because he's like, you know, so, so celebrity by day, Robin Hood by night, whatever. He, you can't get away from those kinds of stories. Mm-hmm. Um, especially in this economy. Um, Hi-yo. so <laughs> I, I, you know what I mean? Like on one hand, it's like, yeah, that, that is very current, very relevant, but also something we've seen a lot. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't disagree with that part of it. I think that the upshot is that if they're going to be telling, like, I, I just think that, that for many years, nobody knew what to do with green arrow. And that mm-hmm. sort of the the idea of the one percent has has focused who that character is in the DC universe, and so the the downside of that is that you're going to get a lot more of these type of Green Arrow stories. The upside of that is that it's not just Green Batman anymore. Yeah, and that's a great point. And this issue does play. I, this this reminded me of uh, the only. In a in a like uncomfortable way, it reminded me of the only Black Mirror episode I've ever seen, which is the first one, the really bad one that <laughs> everyone should skip. Do you know the one I'm talking I'm trying, about? I saw Black Mirror, but I can't remember what the first episode was. It's the one with the pig oh, yeah, and no, the yeah, yeah, yeah. he fucks yeah, the pig. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It just reminded me of the like having the public vote, which I they didn't really do that in that, but just how how involving ma- making the public complicit to a terrible act and what that means I thought was like a really interesting take for the book to go an interesting direction for the book to go in. Yeah. Vince, what'd you think? Um, I liked it. I think it's immediately better than their, uh, Batgirl and the birds of prey stuff. Remember when that started, it almost teased you a little bit that it was going to be very rebirth important. I feel like that first arc teased a lot of timey wimey stuff that, that made you think, Oh, this is going to be, this is going to be maybe a cornerstone book. And then it kind of went away from that after that first arc. I feel like this is, this is the Benson's doing that again. And hopefully, hopefully it still feels like a, an important book in, in an arc or two. Still, um, 
I, I like the, the JL tie in here. I like, I like how he's, you know, doesn't know whether he's going to tell Roy or not or, or how he's going to do it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I like, I like that little exchange with him and Roy and then Roy kind of goes off to do his own thing. And, um, the <laughs> I wrote a quote down here. Somebody at one point says Red Red Hood's damaged. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which yeah. is like, what is he, the freaking Joker? Um I'm I just have to say that with a half very half heartedly now. I can't even we tell do that joke so often it's <laughs> we got we gotta we gotta let the past die <laughs> at some point. Um I one thing about this story and stories like it um it's interesting how in Green Arrow they almost portray like the left extreme as just as bad as often as they do like the like corporations and right wing, you know, uh-huh. which is I'm biased. Okay, I'm going to I'm 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 biased up front. I can say that. But I feel like a story can get in trouble when you uh, – so this guy is supposed to represent the 1%, right? Mm-hmm. And and they're literally like murdering people on, on a broadcast, right? Um, well, sorry. Which guy is representing the 1%? The Citizen Watch guy. No, he's representing the 99%. Oh, that's what. Sorry, that's what I meant. Okay. That's what I okay, meant. Sorry. I meant the. Ni- yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Sorry, that was my. I misspoke. I meant the ninety-nine percent. All of us. Yeah. <laughs> is what I meant. Like the yeah. So and I just think like. Um. Not that you can't have a villain on the left side, of course, or a villain who's also supposedly representing the the downtrodden or whatever. That obviously. But I think it's it's interesting how, you know, that's a very extreme thing that that person did. And there's not really any, like, real-life parallel to it, I don't think. Um, whereas you have, like, actual Nazis hitting people with cars and killing them. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> See, I, it's interesting I, when you try to go... I kind of took it a different way. Well, it's a bad actor... I mean, it's obviously somebody who's not really... Right, right. Um, yeah. No, no, but not even that. I, I just kind of took it as more of the, like... Um, I mean, I, maybe this is just because we live in hell, but I feel like every <laughs> villain is Trump now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and you know, this... Which is also bad. Yes, exactly. <laughs> bad for storytelling. Uh, yeah, but, but but this just felt like, you know, this is false populism in the way that Trump is false populism. Sure. Except I wouldn't equate this to Trump. I would I would say that this is Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Again though, I, like we were saying before, this just feels in a way very different than what we not than necessarily what we got from Percy's run, but if you think uh-huh. about like Green Arrow when Re, when uh Blackest Night started, I was sorry, sorry, Brightest Day rather, where he was like in that forest and, you know, no one knew what the hell to do with him. Or even, like, after Judd Winnick left the book, when he and Black Canary got married, 
They never really knew how to follow up with any of that stuff. It just felt like there was this really important Justice League character that just, that until he shot a dude in the head and, uh, you know, in Cry for Justice, there hadn't been, like, an an in-story character moment that wasn't about his relationships or him being a mayor in a very long mm-hmm. time. So I'm, I'm just happy that we have a, a Green Arrow now within the DC Universe that is identifiable by a by a trait or two. Yeah. Yep. No, I agree. I totally agree. In fact, I think I think one of the things that bugs me a little like I, I think this is a very good comic. I think it's very competently made and written and it's very good. I think one of the things that bugs me about Ali's characterization is that he gets himself into these situations where he's supposed to he's he's the lib, right? Yeah. He's the he's the dang lib. Um He's the social justice warrior, and he always ends up. It always ends up kind of playing it safe, or like, well, okay, we're gonna have we're gonna have a villain who represents the ninety nine percent, and he's gonna literally murder somebody and cut somebody's head off, and what? And then Ali comes in from a from a center left perspective, and he's like trying to do the right thing. And I feel like writers always. We kind of talked about this with the with the uh, arc about the prison, about the about uh, parasite. parasite, right? And they kind of dance around this, like, well, you know, the status quo is is not working, and it's really bad. But then the solutions, even though Ali would describe himself as a liberal or whatever, it's the solutions are almost unilaterally neoliberal. Now we're getting like way in the weeds here, but like, you know what I mean? There's, we need what, basically what I'm saying is we need a leftist superhero. (laughs) That's what I want. Don't at me. Uh, That's fair. So basically you're just saying green arrow could do more. (laughs) Yes. Right now he's like, uh, he's like Jeff Bezos. I just, how can I help? I don't know what to do with all this money. <laughs> I, you tell me. I don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, I also think we should note that for a book that was not ever really known for its fantastic art, Green Arrow Rebirth has had some just fucking incredible art on it. You know, Javi Fernandez mm-hmm. is really good. Otto Schmidt was dope. Juan Ferreira was really good. You know, there's been just some, like, heavy hitters of DC artistic talent on this book since Rebirth started. And mm-hmm. I think that's awesome. I think it's great that, I think for a couple of years there, there was this sort of, uh, DC was just putting all of its big artists on one or two books. And it's nice to see them spreading the wealth out a little bit. And also just giving guys... A big a, a chance to do, uh, a chance to make a book look more unique than it would have a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they have a lot of really good artists now too. Not that they didn't always, but I feel like DC is at its least house style, quote unquote, air quotes house style than it's ever been. Yeah, I agree with that. I think, it's- and by ever, I mean like you know, within the past decade. 
within our within our experience and reading regularly. Yes, yes. Uh, the three of us collectively. Yeah, I agree. Uh, this is um, this is a really fun time to be a a DC fan, boy or girl. Um, let's talk about Green Lanterns, and then we'll take a break. Uh, Green Lanterns fifty two, written by Dan Jurgens, or or is it Jan Durgens? We'll let you decide. <laughs> um, and illustrated by um, Marco Santucci. So, I like how this book started off as a uh, Simon and Jessica book. But since Jurgens took over, it's basically a How's Jordan <laughs> book. Yeah. <laughs> That's weird, right? Yep. <laughs> Not just me. What did you guys think of this issue? Uh, I didn't think much about it. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 pretty much like your standard fine lantern book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really really not inspiring. I think there's some stuff in there for, um, I think there's some stuff in there for uh people who are like horny for continuity or horny for like uh like like uh, like references to past things but like you know me i love i love references to old concepts or like the way that morrison incorporates age-old things into modern comics but the problem is is that like jurgens doesn't really do it with a new purpose he doesn't really he doesn't really like uh pull out the what are they called the ravagers Ravagers. the ravagers he doesn't really put like a new twist on them or anything or like or at least not an interesting one you know i oh here they are again but i don't really know they're just they're just the the enemy now you know like it's not there's no there's no like real interesting twist or anything to them um i think the evil anomaly that appears to be inside Simon's ring. That's an interesting concept. Um, it was telegraphed like a few issues ago. I feel like you could tell the ring was like giving false information and stuff from the start. Basically. Um, that's fine. Uh, one thing that's that's also a thing though, that we've had really recently too. I don't remember that. When when was that? Uh, Voltheum, like the whole power ring. Oh man, you, I was so checked out during that shit. But uh, you're right. You're right. I have two words for you, Vince. Uh huh. Frank Leminski. <laughs> oh God. Ah, I can't man, even. Man, what if the... this? What if this evil guy is Frank Leminski? <laughs> <laughs> that would that would uh, that would allow this whole arc to be redeemed in my mind. I've lived a thousand lifetimes since I've read Frank Levinsky. I feel like I feel like I was surely that was ten years ago. <laughs> you were so much older than you. You're younger than that now. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yeah. Um, oh man. So, uh, have you guys read the solicit for the last issue of the series? Never. Zach? Probably. Um, I don't remember what it says. I know I did, though. The, okay, so this just goes back to my point of when did this become a Hal book. The series ends with a rematch between the Cyborg Superman and Hal Jordan over the fate of Coast City. <laughs> I'm not even joking. 
that's that's the most Jurgens way that this book I know, could go out. I know. It just like one hundred percent. It sounds like a joke. Like, oh yeah, Jurgens is going to bring back Cyborg Superman for the finale of Green Lanterns. Nope, he's actually doing that. Um, <laughs> it just seems to me like this was a script that was in a book. Uh, it was in a binder someplace, and they just needed to. They for whatever reason didn't want to cancel Green Lanterns yet, and so they just pulled out this old Jurgens script to uh, keep it going, and they threw Simon as the lit lantern ring that was corrupted but it was really like john or kilowog or something uh yeah he's I, he's coming into this arc actually too it looks like if you look at 56 uh-huh. the cyborg superman and the ravagers dish out damage well, that, that, across the cosmos 57 is the last issue uh, yeah yeah but it, it seems like Cyborg Superman's gonna like dovetail into this arc. I thought it was maybe like a different arc entirely. I guess is what where my oh, okay. confusion was, but no, it's like Cyborg Superman's coming into this arc. Man, like oh, Cyborg Superman's probably in his ring um, <laughs> because that makes sense. Uh, no, wait, that probably is what it is because if you look at the solicit for fifty four. <laughs> Hank Henshaw found a way to override the Green Lantern's power rings, and he's using that ability to gaslight Simon Baz. Oh, well, there you go. There it is. Mystery solved. The fact, what the hell? The, the fact that they are using the word gaslighting in a solicit <laughs> is uh, is not a good sign. No. Because you know that's a word that like Jurgens heard his son say, and he just like, yeah. you know, doesn't really understand it. He heard it on one of Ethan Van Skyver's <laughs> streams. <laughs> <laughs> in a reference to how it's bullshit and not a real thing. Right, right. And uh and yeah. Yep. Um yeah. Well, let's take a break. What uh, Oh, I just want to talk about one sure. one art thing I really liked. Santucci, I love the when they kind of ring up Hal and he's just chilling in sector 066 or whatever. I love the the art design of that. There's like a it's like a meadow, and there's like a big waterfall, and it's very pretty. See, I was uh, I was a little bit disappointed because I, I saw that sort of landscape before I saw the uh, the space sector, and I thought he was on the uh, blue bl- the blue lantern planet at first. Oh, uh huh. But no, it's no. it's weird. I feel like Saint Walker was the one character everybody agreed was good after the. Uh, Everything got kind of lantern crazy for a while there, and we've uh-huh. barely seen Saint Walker in years. I don't get it. Well, that's that's because all will not be well, Brian. <laughs> uh, that is true. That is true. Well, now let's hit that break, and let's dwell on how everything is bad, and we'll be back in just a minute. My name's Matt. And I'm Wes. And together we host That's the Issue, the comic book podcast that gets to know you through the issues that you love. Every month we take a random, tangent-filled look through comic books and pop culture. And along the way we cover everything from Doink the Clown to Mr. Blobby. Don't ask about the Mr. Blobby. We don't ask about the Mr. Blobby. (laughs) We do also talk about comic books as well. Like the weirdest comic books in your collection or your favorite comic book movies. So join us on the third Friday of every month on multiversitycomics.com or wherever podcasts are found. Blobby, blobby, blobby! (laughs) I knew you'd do that well. That's why I put it at the end. And we are back with Harley Quinn, number 47. Written by Sam Humphreys, illustrated by John Timms. Uh, we've gotten to a place where we're talking about Harley Quinn every month, guys, or twice a month rather. Um, <laughs> That'll change. Don't worry. It might. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's done. I think. Yeah, I think it might have already changed. We'll see. Um, 
So this is the the sort of wrap up of the Harley Quinn versus Apocalypse story. And don't take my yawn as an indictment of the book, although maybe do. I don't know. Um, to me, I, I think you said this once, Vince, that like every arc you get excited for the first issue and then at some point realize it's still Harley Quinn and get bored of it. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's exactly what happened to me halfway through last week's, last time's issue. And by this time, I was totally done with this concept. Um, again, it's fine. Like, it's better than a lot of other Harley stories we've had of late. But I don't need any more of this. Yeah, I basically agree. Um, although I did, I, I thought that this was cute. I thought it was a cute uh, resolution to the the apocalypse stuff. Um, I think uh, the the little sort of alternative art interludes that we've been getting in a couple of these issues have been really good. Yes, I'll agree with that for sure. The the Harley Love Save the Last Dance thing that was in here. Mm-hmm. Um. I think the the only thing, yeah, I, I'm I guess I'm disappointed about how like Harley the the book Harley Quinn, not the character necessarily, but the book seems to want to go in these different directions that take Harley Harley like radically away from where she was before, and then at the end of that arc, she's always back where she was, you know? Yeah. Which is, I understand that that's the way that some comics work, but it seems to be weirdly, up, it, it, it's a, it applies to Harley Quinn, the book, in a very weird way. Like, she can go off and do a three-issue arc completely different from anything else, and then she's right back in this status quo that I'm not all that interested in, you know? Yeah. So, so while I was interested in this arc... All of a sudden, at the end, I'm given the promise of more of something I'm, I've become tired of. <laughs> Does that make sense? Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Zach. Yeah, pretty much the same. Um, I really liked the New God stuff, but that's over, and it also it, it really kind of even wore out the goodwill I had from that in this in this issue. Um, the, the humor kind of took a, a turn for the worse, I think, um, some, some choice words about, about thong lint and, and that sort (laughs) of thing. And, um, the art is still really good. The interludes are good. Lobo. I like Lobo. Um, but, but yeah, I, I don't think this is. It, it's it, yeah. It, it's it's probably still fine. It's good that Sam Humphreys seems to have found a book that he um, can work with, fits well in. Uh, but yeah. And uh, hey, Frank Cho did a variant. That's not. That's actually like pretty tasteful and pretty. <laughs> I really like that variant. I almost can't believe it's Frank Cho. I almost can't believe um what what is um I guess that's what it, that's the brand yeah okay oh, this is that's yeah that's what we call these variant covers or these this kind of show art mm-hmm. oh man 
Well, let's talk about... I just... Sorry, go ahead, Zach. No, never mind. I was thinking oh. about some bad Frank Cho covers. <laughs> I wanted to mention one more thing before we move on, sure. just because this is the this is the first place I saw this this week. But the little uh, Steve Ditko in memoriam that they did. Yes, mm-hmm. very nice. Um, that was nice. I, I guess Marvel... <laughs> Kind of the opposite of what they did with Kirby. I was just um, going to say the same thing. Yeah, they did like four yeah. pages, right? At the end of each issue this week. Right. Week? Yep, they're doing like four-page tributes, which is really, really good on Marvel's part. Um, but I I just liked seeing the little, little Steve Ditko in memoriam to some of his famous characters. It wasn't, it wasn't much, but it was nice. I enjoyed seeing that. I mean, Ditko is even more than Kirby, a guy that is way more associated with his Marvel work than his DC work. Um, but when you look at those at, at those images, you see that he did create and work on a fair amount of important DC properties. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's get into Justice League number five, written by James Tynion the fourth, illustrated by Doug Monkey. This is uh, the first of what is promised to be a series of. Uh, sort of Legion of Doom interludes in, t- in the main story, uh, away from Scott Snyder's story. Vince, you said you had some uh, spicy takes on this. Oh. <laughs> so lay it on us. Oh, man, really? I've got, I have to go first here? Okay. Um, uh, okay, I. it's not bad. It's not, I'm, nothing I'm going to say is bad. Um, I like this issue a lot. Um. It serves the purpose, essentially, of giving us a lot of context for information that we already know. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, this it is, explains... This is how Luther's not good anymore. Yeah, it, right. Exactly. And it explains... Which, we again, we already kind of knew, but we didn't see the full context for why he picked who he picked to join the... To form the Legion of Doom, why they what forces they're going after and sort of the, the order of things. It cleans up a lot of like the, the very first four issues of uh, justice league were very fast paced and kind of, um, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a counter ticking down basically. And so nobody has time to stop and think, and this is the issue that kind of stops and thinks for you, you know? Um, and I think that like sometimes when comics do that, it's annoying because I feel like we don't need things explained to us. But I thought this comic was particularly adept at it. And I thought uh, James uh, Tynion's script was really good. I think, I think he's got a really nice handle on Lex. I think the Lex that's going around recruiting these people was really compellingly written. Um, I think some of the dialogue was really good, very, very strong. You know, he's making no bones about what they're doing here. And and this is where the spicy take part comes in, because I don't want to get this is going to sound like. Like I'm smelling my own farts or like climbing up my own ass or something, but I thought South Park was never good, Vince. Hi, oh, um, I, I, I understand the reference. Um, no, this Justice League story, you know how Snyder talks about sometimes when he talks about comics, how he writes um, things about his, like he writes about his fears. Yeah. You know, and he puts those into his comics and he puts those into the villains. Mm-hmm. 
and so this is going to be me projecting a little bit because I don't know exactly what Scott Snyder's afraid of. You know, I can kind of guess at some of it, but I'm fascinated by this idea that the Legion of Doom is basically acting as some sort of a doomsday cult. That's you know those people that um, believe that they're like accelerationists and they should be that we should be basically making the book of revelations come around. Yes. You know what I'm saying? That I get a lot they don't really explicitly say that, but this whole thing about Lex like wanting everybody to embrace their true nature and to embrace the doom that's coming is all very like revelations, biblical doomsday uh cult type rhetoric. And I feel like, you know, something something I'm afraid of is that these people are out there and they really exist. You know, some of them are in weirdly uh, powerful positions, (laughs) I think, you know, Um, and I think it's fascinating to see the Legion of Doom operate on that level. I think sometimes writers strain to. Uh, make a villain who is bad but also relatable or like you can see where they're coming from. I think it's interesting if it's going down the path that I'm thinking of is that instead of having a Luther, a Luthor that like believes he's right and also maybe from a certain perspective is doing the right thing, he's doing what he thinks is right, but you only think it's the right thing if you're like an accelerationist, which is a very fringe position to be in, you know? So it's not this relatable different perspective. It's a very unrelatable and and kind of scary perspective that's driving this, this villainy. It's, it's a really new twist on the, on the whole, uh, what drives these villains, right? Yeah. Um, also, uh, Luther is a QAnon guy. <laughs> um, as the dude on the call with the theology degree, I have to point out it's Book of Revelation, not plural. Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah, I'll be. A... I'm, I'm I'm extremely lapsed. You know this. I know. It's, just, it's not about. It, most people say it the wrong way. I'm just being uh, I'm just being pedantic about this because I can't be. Um, I was talking about the audio slave. Uh, oh okay. Album. So oh, okay. <laughs> not, not the Bible. I I misspoke. I mean to you the the oeuvre of Chris Cornell is essentially scripture. So <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Uh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, duh. <laughs> uh fell on black days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh Zach, what do you think of this? Uh, this is very good. I really can't top anything that Vince said. Although I do really like how Snyder is kind of doing this thing where um, if 1,000 years into the future we have this legion that's built on Superman, then a million years in the future we have this legion that's built on Lex. Uh-huh. And then if it's like the most Lex thing that he would be like, no, we need that now, and so he would he would bring that legion to now. Yeah, I I have a question about this issue, and this is not a criticism at all. How much of this do you think is 
Tanyan working off of ideas that Snyder has versus how much of this he think is Tanyan having his own ideas here? I don't know, because they've done this several times over the last five years or so, and I always wonder how much one does versus the other. Because, I mean, Snyder's not even given the credit in this issue. Mm-hmm. You know, it's he, it's just Tynion is the writer. It's not plotted by Snyder and Tynion. It's just uh, just written by Tynion. So, um, yeah. Yeah. The reason I'm asking um, that is because I, I feel like, you know, a lot of this obviously ties into the first four issues and gives some context for the first four issues. But if Tynion has more free reign here, I wonder if... I wonder how much of, of those... I wonder how much of that Snyder knew when he was writing the first four issues. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I bet he knew a lot, only because I feel like they work really closely together anyway. Yeah. Uh, this is a- they really have a John's Gleason thing, or Tomasi, I mean, John's Tomasi thing going on. Yeah. Uh, this is also like the perfect type of book for Doug Monkey to be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, this is really good monkey art. Um, it's going to be interesting to see Monkey on Detective Comics later this year. We're not used to seeing him doing something so grounded. Yeah. Yeah, he's been drawing the the weird and the wild yeah. lately. Although he did do that really... Well, I at least remember it being really good. I haven't read it in a really long time, but he did that um, The Man Who Laughs story with Ed Brubaker back mm. in the early oh, 2000s. Yeah. Wow. That's true. Excellent point, Zach. Uh, no, this is good. This is, uh, my concern with, with Justice League in general is a very minor one, which is just that everything is so over the top in terms of, like, you know, I, I think we all appreciate that about Snyder, that Snyder goes for it with his stories. There, there's no half measures taken here. But I wonder sometimes if because everything is so balls to the wall, if there's just the sort of natural letdown of that, where it's never going to kind of live up to all the ingredients that are added up to it, because how could it? Mm-hmm. And when you read a story like this, which which throws not just you know the um, not just the sort of interesting ideas of like the the still force and the ultraviolet spectrum, but also tosses things a million years in the future. And all of that is how do how do you complete this story without just being because it's it's so bonkers and so much fun that how do you how do you defend against it falling short you know yeah well they're doing at least fifty issues we know that that's what Snyder says yeah yeah and the other thing I'll say is that I think. I think what Snyder's building towards, what he's teasing, if if issue four is of any, because issue four happened and then five came along and it kind of it didn't move the plot forward. Mm-hmm. It, recont- it recontextualized all this stuff we already know knew. Um, but at the end of four or towards the end of four, it really potentially opens up this idea that 
um, yeah, things may seem like they're really big and and the stakes are like impossibly high right now, but there's something beyond the horizon that we don't even it's not even necessarily bigger, it's just different. You know, he's Snyder's teasing that like everything blows open and 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 new a new world is created essentially is what I'm getting from it. And so who knows what's next? You know, it, it doesn't have to top the stakes of the first arc, but it could potentially spin off this thing that drives the entire tenor of the DCU more so than Rebirth even did, you know, if they wanted to. That's interesting. Zach, any final thoughts? It's a lot to think about. I don't know. I'm just, uh, I, maybe I, uh, have they mentioned, as he mentioned previously prior to this issue that there are like seven different forces. Was that confirmed already? Yes. Okay. I think I just maybe misremembered that. So, I mean, that's interesting. We only know the two right now, right? The still force and the ultraviolet, uh, spectrum and then something with Aquaman. Yeah. I mean, we're aware of yeah. the Joker core. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> oh, I'm going to get chills when that oath, when, when they start, that oath starts. Uh, Just reading the text, I'm going to get... Oh. Can, we a little, can we get a little preview of that? Can you break us off a preview of the remix here? <laughs> um, not for fame and not for money. To us... The thought of crime is funny. That's all I'll do. Oh, come on. No, I don't even remember the rest. Um, at the end of this issue, Lex Luthor says, fuck justice? Can you say that? That's freaking evil. I mean, in a, in a world <laughs> where Nightwing says, fuck Batman... <laughs> yeah, uh, ah, Robin. Sorry, Robin says, "Fuck Batman." Uh, to to keep it biblical, to quote Pontius Pilate, "What is truth?" So, uh, let's talk about Mister Miracle number ten, the uh, the second to last issue of this series, which is is rapidly coming to a close. Uh, this is written by Tom King, illustrated by Mitch Garrods. Um, I uh, I enjoyed this issue more than I thought I would for a couple of reasons. I liked the Booster Gold Blue Beetle stuff a lot. Uh, that was kind of fun. I also liked the idea that Scott is... is stuck between being a dad and being a king or being a god. You know, I, I, that this is certainly not the first time that these um, sort of uh, that these beats have been brought up in a superhero story before. You know, somebody acting for the good of the people versus the good of his family. But I think that this does a nice job of uh, giving that some context in a way that feels a little bit new. And um, has there been an issue so far where Scott and Barda haven't fucked? <laughs> I made a joke on Twitter that like uh, 
at some point they're going to need to get because you know dark side loves to sit on couches we know that yes yep and at some point they're going to have to have him sit on that couch <laughs> and he's he he's going to be like what this cou- what is this stain that is right here and so, kind of smells so funny essentially he's going to be harley quinn from this last issue of harley quinn yeah yep okay. yep okay. yep uh thong lint yep yep um, Zach, what do you think of this issue? Uh, I like this. I like this quite a bit. Um, I, I I felt like this was maybe some of the most real Tom King dialogue that we've got, and that I meant, and and that I mean it. It felt like the way people would really talk. Yeah. I think there was only one part that I thought was a little excessive when he was uh, buying the cake and he just kept repeating the thing on Saturday and Sunday Yeah, and the thing over and over again. Um, but yeah, I thought the stuff with Bart in this was really great. She was great the whole way through. Pretty much every scene that she was in was just super real. And like I, I agree, the stuff uh, when Booster came on, I got really nervous because I was, was like, "Oh, is this going to be a Booster thing?" Um, but it wasn't. It was a JLI thing, which was really nice. Yeah, it's odd that this is the same person who wrote Booster Gold in Batman, right? So terribly. Yeah. Yeah, I'm. I'm really eager to see how this wraps up. You know, we've got two issues left. Still a lot of stuff can happen. Um, really interested to see where this is going to fit into the, the Tom King DCU. The grand scheme of the Tom King DCU. I'm interested to see how this fits in. Like, if there's any attempt to reconcile the differences in continuity between this and other books oh there won't be no i i would be very surprised um i thought there was an interview with king and maybe i'm just making this up where he said like this is going to change the new gods forever in continuity he did but everything that we're seeing in the dcu right now i think they're just going to chalk it up to that happened that all happened before this I, th- I think gonna, this it's gonna is going to be the be new explained. gods moving forward for sure. Yeah, like I think I think I will not be surprised if Bard and Mister Miracle play a huge role in Heroes in Crisis. Hey, they're on the cover of the book, right? Right. Which I mean, that could just be you know Tom King featuring some of his favorites. Like they they could be featured prominently like that, but not have to be used in story, but. I mean, I feel like it would be kind of cheap and a little disappointing, but I would feel pretty comfortable putting money on Mr. Miracle getting carted off to Sanctuary at the end of this arc, at the end of this run. Yep. It feels so disconnected from all of that. It really does, but like just the machine, you know, the churning of the machine... 
interesting. I, I also don't think that that was... I mean, maybe it was in King's mind when this series was getting started, but I, I doubt that it was as fully formed as it is now. Right. I doubt he knew that he was going to get a seven-issue event focused on that thing. And, and I feel like the temptation is going to be pretty high to, to dovetail this into that. We're definitely going to see a nine panel page of Mr. Miracle being interviewed at Sanctuary. Yes. For sure. For sure. I dug his Sheriff of Babylon shirt today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I still liked the, I liked the reverse flash shirt better though. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. <laughs> um. Yeah. I, I like this a lot too. Um, the only thing that really made me gag was the the um, uh, Funky Flashman story that he was telling about the star-eating god. Uh-huh. Like, again, way too much of that long past, like, we get the point, you know? Mm-hmm. But, but otherwise, otherwise a fine issue of Mr. Miracle. Good week for Tom King. Yes. Absolutely. Let's turn over to Nightwing number 47, written by Ben Percy, illustrated by Chris Mooneyham. This is labeled as the finale of an arc, but it certainly doesn't end with any finality. (laughs) Nope. Uh, Zach, you were the, the most down on this arc from the start. What did you think of this final issue? I I liked this quite a bit. I think this is the issue where Mooneyham's art really um, landed for me. B- bring on this new this new JRJR <laughs> 2.0. He's good again. He's good again. Um, yeah, no, I liked this. This is this was fine. Vince. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think Mooneyham's art is really good, but I think that the first issue was like next level as far as how it was, everything was staged and how the action came across and it felt like it was more, more well considered on the part of both the writer and the artist. Like that first issue was so tight and so good. And I felt like this was just more of a standard this is like a standard street level um, Dick versus Elon Musk type story, you know. Um, it says Hyperloop Subway under construction right there. Yep. Um, Who is Grimes in the story? Uh, we're all Grimes. Okay. <laughs> uh, oh, poor Grimes. Um, uh, poor Grimes, right? Like... <laughs> I mean, she's doing it to herself, too, but. I mean, <laughs> how much agency does she have? I don't know. Well, if you read that one, if you read that one thing about Elon Musk and his like ex-wife or ex-partner or whatever, you would you would be tempted to say not much. <laughs> yep. But uh, anyway, that's this isn't the Elon Musk cast. This is the yeah. This is <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. He hasn't bought us out yet. Well, we are gonna sell. Yep. Yeah, we're gonna sell to the to the to the dumb company or whatever it's called. <laughs> the what? Uh, 
<laughs> what is what is the company called? It's it's not the dumb company, but it's like the the flamethrower the the flamethrower division. Oh yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, what's it called? I have no idea, but I know what you mean. Yeah, it's like the loser company or the shit, co- the boring the boring company. That's what it is. Sorry, I was so close. Dumb company. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this was fine. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. It's the lame ass people. Yeah. Um. Very scary getting sucked into phones. Shit going on in this issue. Yeah. And I only say that because I've. I think it's going to happen to me someday. Well, duh. Um. Yeah, this is fine. This is it's fine. It's not as exciting as that first issue. That first issue blew me away. Yeah, I'll agree with that. I also think it's it's interesting that this book is doubling down on an idea that we were sort of introduced to a number of times over the past few years, which is that Dick Grayson is the uh, the as put here the center of a web of heroes. Mm. That you know DC seems to really be doubling down on the fact that Dick is really important and that Dick is sort of a uh, a a character that is able to bridge the various corners of the DCU together in a really uh, interesting and important way. So I like that. He's going to die. Oh, God, I hope not. Ugh, this is not uh, Infinite Crisis in Dan DiDio's <laughs> way he wants it done. He's been waiting this whole time. Yep. Whatever they kind <laughs> that, of... That... Kind that of version him. of oh go ahead what you say forever evil remember kind of yeah kind of a little bit they remember, actually just made him made him better yeah <laughs> remember his cameo in uh bendis's uh act action number one or 1001 last mm-hmm. week uh-huh. that the dan DiDio from that comic is going to cross over <laughs> and kill nightwing with his bare hands Take this. <laughs> Judo chop. <laughs> I know he's basically Austin Powers. <laughs> Got it. Yep. Yeah, baby. I, you know I had to do it to him. Oh, behave. <laughs> Don't make it horny. <laughs> Shagadilic. That was Bernie Sanders. I'm no longer a democratic socialist. I am a psychedelic socialist. <laughs> Hang on, give me a minute here. I, I get my deal. I have to get Bernie Sanders out of my system. Look, <laughs> look, look. All right. Um, let's see. Here we- here we go. Um, crikey, I lost my mojo. <laughs> We're so fucking stupid. <laughs> I told you I had a dream that I was dying, and I was trying to think of the best thing to put on my tombstone. And in my dream, I put Crikey, I lost my mojo. And I thought it would make people laugh in the cemetery. <laughs> Real dream I had less than a year ago. (laughs) 
All right, let's talk about Shane the Changing Woman. Uh, number six, the finale, written by Cecil Castellucci, illustrated by Marley Zarconi. Um, so I'm gonna go first here because you guys are gonna be mad with me about this. Mad at oh boy! I just feel like this issue felt incredibly rushed. That so much was crammed into this issue that I felt everything felt a little forced. And while I liked everything that happened in it, I feel like it, it, this was three issues worth of story crammed into one. One issue for the pages. I wish it wasn't so late and I wasn't so tired, so I can tell you all the reasons that you're wrong and why this is the best young animal book. But alas, it is. I don't think it's past 12 a.m. Eastern time. So I don't think it's bad. I just think that this felt rushed. I, uh, if you want to hear me talk about why this book is good, go listen to um, last week's pull list episode of Robots from Tomorrow. Nice plug. Uh, Say, do you want me to pick up that name you dropped, or what? (laughs) (laughs) Listen, just because they don't, just because they don't call you anymore, Brian. Oh, Oh, no, I love this. I thought this was wonderful. This is probably my favorite issue of the week, and and I do stand by. I think this this is my favorite young animal series. I guess the other books have. You know, each an issue more to change in my mind, but um, I, I adored this. I thought this was fantastic. Um, I, as always, I fall somewhere in the middle between you guys. Um, closer to Zach's side, though. Um, I see what you mean, Brian, because we've kind of been saying that all along that these books, these books have dropped hints within the story that there was actually more planned than just these six issue uh, miniseries yes. for this second wave. Yes. And I feel like across the board, you can feel that, you know, and I thought that this issue was no exception because I think that, I think that they had to wrap up a lot of stuff very quickly that there was clearly probably more, a, a longer arc for, that said, I don't. I think they did a really good job of wrapping all that stuff up very quickly because of the necessity of the thing. I don't think you feel that too much, or, or, or if you feel it, I don't think it's necessarily a negative. I think you can. I think there's a lot of stuff that you can fill in. Um, a lot of this is so emotional and theoretical to begin with that. It almost, it almost works essentially because it's more of a story about emotional wavelengths than it is about getting from one plot point to another, you know? And because of that, I don't even feel like I 100% understand everything that happened, you know? It's kind of like these characters use this, like, magical ability or mysticism or something that... that they just know how it works and none of us do. And they just know what to do when they need to do it and they do it. And in some books that annoys me sometimes, but in this book, it's so careful about drawing emotion out of everything uh, that I think it really works. I think it is my, it's also my favorite young animal 
series across from the first install from Shade the Changing Girl to Shade the Changing Woman. I think it's the most successful book from beginning to end at being a thing and being consistent about it. And uh, yeah, I really like this too. And and Marley Zarconi's art is so wonderful. See, and I can't wait. I can't wait to see what they do next. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I don't dislike this. I, I, I want to make that very clear. I think this is very good. I just think that the stuff with with Rack Shade and the Megan Shade would have read better over two or three issues. There was. Oh yeah. Oh, see, I, I I think I I think I disagree. I think that. I don't really know what could have been serviced by stretching it out. I think it would have felt I'd more I would be natural. interested to hear. Like, to me, this just, again, I keep saying rushed. To me, this just felt like like every page had twice as much stuff as it should in it because they had to get everything out in this issue. Whereas giving it more room to breathe. And it goes from, like, there's just so much, there, there is so much of a, of a change in tone from... From like from page one to page five to page ten to page fifteen, tone changes so much. It's just this this whirlwind, and not in a way that feels necessarily to me mm-hmm. beneficial. Yeah, like it, I guess I just yeah, I guess I just I don't really see that. I feel like it's fairly consistent um, throughout. I, I yeah, I guess I I think this may just be a I, I don't really see how what could be serviced by necessarily stretching the story out more. Um, I thought I thought it was like pretty satisfying seeing her cycle through some of the people from um, the original, oh, not the original, but like the Pete Milligan Shade the Changing Man, yeah. and then um, I, I thought that each character got a really strong emotional beat. They even brought back like Life with Honey. Um, I I don't disagree that it feels like like it feels like it wrapped up storylines that were meant to go longer. I feel like a lot of the, some of the stuff with her boyfriend who was who wants to become an astronaut, her you know her ex who wants to become an astronaut. I feel I feel like that stuff was maybe meant to go longer. And maybe some of the stuff with um, with River and the and the um, the anti alien organization. It, it seems like mm-hmm. that stuff was maybe meant to go longer. Um, but that said, I feel like that was more secondary and tertiary to the main story of of. Um, Megan Shade or or Loma, whatever you want to call her. Um, so I maybe I, I guess maybe I don't mind that as much. Again, I, I don't think it was bad. I, I just I, I would have to me this read like three issues in one. And that's okay. Yeah, yeah, and I I think like that's an I think sometimes I like those issues better. If that you know. Um. Comics are too decompressed. I don't disagree with that point, but I, I don't think that this is necessarily a good example of how not to of how to compress them. I guess we'll, we'll agree to disagree. Yeah. 
All right, let's let's plow through these last couple here. The Curse of Brimstone Five. Did anybody read this issue besides me? Yeah. Yep. This issue has has three <laughs> pencilers on it, which is always a good sign. <laughs> yeah. Uh, written by Justin Dorden, illustrated by Philip Tan, Jose Luis, and Naki Miranda, all of whom I think do decent work here. Mm-hmm. But it's just kind of odd that there needed to be three pencilers for this one issue. Uh, they it all looks the same to me. <laughs> yeah, it, it, there's not like vast differences in the artwork either. This is probably the least melty Philip Tan work <laughs> we've gotten so far. <laughs> You're the one who used that phrase, Vince. I'm just did I really? Yeah, you said every, everyone's face looks like they're melting off each other. Like it just oh, yeah. Well, I'm right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, this was weird. This was this was so divorced. We haven't really seen. This was so divorced from everything that came before. Like they just wander into this different town, and it's a town that's being haunted by Slackjaw, which is basically Slender Man. And yeah, it's just completely. This feels like a completely different book than what came before. This was a weird. It was also a very. It felt very light to me. Like not a whole lot happened. Light or slight. Slight. Okay. Light is in not heavy. Right, because because but to to me, light means like breezy. And there's kids that are being murdered here, so I, I don't... <laughs> not not light in tone, but like light in in content. Yeah, okay. Slight, slight is yes, yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't think this was much worse or better than the prior issues, just very different. Yeah, it's um, ah, it's just such a generic story. You know, yeah. oh, it's Slender Man. Only not. Then we gotta now we gotta deal with this. <laughs> it has it has nothing, it has nothing to do with the game. I'm just reading the picture of this. So here's the thing, guys. It's Slender Man, but it's not, and they have to deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> that was literally the yeah right. Dia's cigar falls out of his mouth. <laughs> Yeah, you're stealing my joke. Yeah. <laughs> Which I stole from Patty Mo, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> That's great. Uh, anything else to add? No. All right. Let's... I actually, I actually do kind of like the art here a little bit. I, I don't know why. Something about it is different and fits the it, it fits the book in a in a nice way mm-hmm. this feels like a weird mid-2000s vertigo book yeah that's a yeah it book. does yeah like sweet tooth era yeah but not sweet tooth obviously but just that that period of time um, yes yeah yeah so um let's talk about the unexpected Number three, 
written by Steve Orlando, illustrated by Carrie Nord. Um, so full disclosure, I forgot we had to read this book this week, so I skimmed it before the show. Um, so I, I am not, I don't have the most nuanced take on this, so I'm going to let you guys go first, and I'll just chime in little things here and there. Zach, why don't you start? Um, I thought this issue was really nice. It, uh, I, I was a bit disappointed, I think, when the series started and then those two, the two characters got killed off, the Ascendant and the Judge, um, because they, you know, just seemed like interesting characters and I was afraid we wouldn't, um, you know, get to know much about them. But this issue spends a lot of time dealing with the Ascendant's backstory and it's really interesting. It's again kind of getting into this whole weird secret history of the DCU. It really is kind of funny to me how we have this whole corner of dark multiverse books of, of spinning out of metal that almost kind of feel like they're doing their own thing and and in a lot of ways it, it, it feels like a, a almost like the New 52 like what the new 52 was trying to do create this new version of the DCU, but it's in a much more successful way. Um, we get Omar sin, Onimar, sorry, Onimar sin back in this issue again. Um, he's a, he's an interesting villain. Get some dinosaur Island stuff. I, I like really dug this issue a lot. Carrie Nord's art is fantastic as well. Yeah, I agree. I think oh, it's Onomar Sin is like <laughs> from the name to just like how he talks and carries himself. It's like a more successful Rogalzar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I Yeah, I can see that. Really, I mean it basically is, you know. Um he's yelling at a dinosaur at one point. I bested your forefather. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what more do you want, you know? Um yeah, this is really good. Really flavorful characters. Um, I'm liking the I'm liking this neon character a lot. Um, I feel like there's layers there that like all of a sudden he'll he'll come out and he'll snap and then you know kind of apologize for it and he's clearly carrying this like all this weight along with him and I feel like uh, Orlando does a very good job of making sure that. We feel that too. Um, I, other than that, I think Zach said it all. Um, just a really solid book that has a lot of a lot of uh, fun aspects of DC lore that we like, kind of sprinkled in once in a while, and it's it's making for a really engaging read. So I like this a lot. Yeah, I agree with everything you guys said. The one note I want to say, and I don't mean this as a negative for this issue, but it seems like there is so much new stuff happening in this series that I think it can run the risk at times of feeling a little bit like um, like it's hard to ke- it's hard to keep up with all the new characters that are happening in this in this series. Almost nothing that's happening here we've seen before the first issue of this series and there's you know like between five and eight brand new characters that are all important to the story at large and i think right now it's very manageable but i think if it got much bigger it would be a little bit tough to maybe 
keep track of. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting how like they're just letting Orlando do this with completely. We've talked about this before, just like with completely brand new characters. Yes, Zach, you were gonna say something. I, I was just gonna say it kind of feels more like a like an image or create our own book than a than a DC universe title title. You know, it's it's almost like Orlando's getting to create this whole world, you know whole cloth with just a few DC elements included and incorporated. So they're they're giving Orlando a lot of free reign these days, which is nice. Yeah, and a little bit unexpectedly, so Ah! Oh, ho, ho, ho. See what I did there? You're a card. I'm a joker, baby. Ah! <laughs> Fuck. You set me up for that one. Well, that does it for this week's DC3 cast. Let's quickly look ahead to next week, as we like to do here. We got Sandman Universe, number one. That That's a big one. Uh, Catwoman, number two. The next issue of Detective Comics. The finale of Eternity Girl. The uh, the finale of... Uh, no, uh, yeah, Hal Jordan, this is the last one, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, Hawkman, number three. What else we got here? Plastic Man. Supergirl. And the, new, the, the start of the Mark and Draco Supergirl. The next issue of Bendis is Superman. The Flash, the penultimate issue of The Immortal Men, R.I.P., pull it out. <laughs> um, first issue of the Suicide Squad Aquaman crossover. Ah, yes, yes, yes. Sideways, number seven. Red Hood and the Outlaws. Yeah, there, there's some... Uh... It's a hefty week. It is a hefty that's a week. Good, that's a good-ass week yeah. right there. And... Uh, if you want to talk to us about that week or anything else, you can follow us on Twitter. I am at Brian is an app. I am at VG. No, I'm not. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm at LCD lounge underscore lounge system. Yeah. Sorry. I, I was distracted by my wonderful new avatar, uh, created by friend of the show, Jeremy. Um, I got a little distracted there, Zach. <laughs> I'm at Wilker Fox. And uh, I think I speak for Zach when I say watch The Leftovers, and we'll see you guys next week. Hey, what the fuckers, what the fuck sticks, what the fuckalos, what the fuckerinos, Mark Marin Joker here. We've got a great show for you. Harvey Dent is here. We're going to rap. We're going to get deep. We're going to dance with the devil in the pale moonlight. We're going to solve some issues that he and I have had. It's healing. It's good. But first, you hate trying to buy coffee from the grocery store. They don't have your flavor. They don't have your brand. This episode of WTF is sponsored by Ace Chemical Organic Sustainable Coffee. It ships anywhere in the country, and it's vacuum sealed, so it doesn't lose its rich flavor. I'm going to take a sip here. Boom! I just shit my pants. Get 25% off your first order when you use the code TWISTED. That's Ace Chemical Coffee. What could possibly go wrong? Now on with the show. This town needs an enema. Bam, 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 bam. Guitar sounds. 
Harley lives! 